Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Professor Peter St. Assange. Peter is an economics professor at the Heritage Foundation. Peter is a frequent contributor to Coindesk and the Wall Street Journal, and he's a fellow at the Mises Institute. In this episode, we discuss the fundamental differences between Keynesian and Austrian economics, the concept of hoarding money as ethical, and what would happen if the U.S. dollar lost its reserve status. We also discuss El Salvador's Bitcoin legal tender law. Peter compares the current economy to where we were with the 08-09 financial crisis, and he gives predictions on how long this current debt cycle can last. Peter gives an interesting analysis on the fundamental driver to Bitcoin's price volatility, and Peter gives his price predictions for Bitcoin. This was a fantastic discussion. I know you will enjoy it. Now, a little bit about our sponsors. Jeter Melder LLP is more than a law firm. It is a legal team. Justin and Michael have over 30 years of experience working with different clients on different legal issues from different sides of the docket in areas such as business disputes, constitutional rights, employment agreements, employment discrimination, local counsel, and pay issues. Jeter Melder have advocated in federal and state courts in Arkansas, California, Illinois, New Mexico, and Texas. With a unique blend of clients from doctors, fellow attorneys, tradesmen, hourly workers, and the unemployed to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies, they all have one thing in common. They believe in Jeter Melder and Jeter Melder believes in them. Give them a call at 214-699-4758 or visit them at JeterMelder.com. That's J-E-T-E-R-M-E-L-D-E-R.com. Hey, Peter. Uh, thanks for coming on the show from one uh, doctor of a different profession to another doctor. Uh, I really appreciate your expertise. I've uh, followed you uh, for quite some time on Twitter and uh, read a lot of your work. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of your time. And Peter, for the audience that may not be familiar with you, why don't you just introduce yourself and kind of a little bit about your background and, and kind of currently what you're doing, um, uh, what you're currently doing. Sure. Uh, my name is Peter St. Ange. Uh, so I am an economist. I did my uh, studies at George Mason, which is kind of the mecca of Austrian economics. Uh, I started out in corporate, uh, corporate marketing, actually, for a couple of big companies and uh, really got interested in sort of how the world works. Uh, that brought me to Austrian, which I think has a much more realistic See, I think coming from a business background, you see how the real world works, right? And a lot of what I got from Keynesian, it it's, it works maybe in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. And for me, Austrian economics is really a lot closer to how uh, humans actually behave, how you know business works, how prosperity is created, and so on. Yeah, fantastic, um, Peter. When you were first starting learning about Austrian economics or in your schooling. I mean, was there how much Keynesian economics were you aware of or had you been schooled in prior to that? I guess maybe. uh, Well, yeah, explain that process, because I have an interesting question about the dichotomy between the two. Yeah, well, I I did my undergrad at uh, McGill uh, up in Montreal, and there was not one mention of Austrian ever. Uh, I had never heard of Murray Rothbard. I don't think I'd ever heard of of uh, Mises until 1999. Wow! 
so I was 26 years old. Uh, I had come across a bookstore in Tokyo and I was just looking for something to read. And there was this old book by Mark Skousen where he uh, compared the different schools of thought. And that was literally the first time that I had ever heard of Austrian. So that was with an undergrad uh, degree in economics. <laughs> now, d- did not even know this school existed. It wasn't even a question of whether they had mentioned them and said they were wrong. Literally, I don't believe my professors had ever heard of Austrian economics. That's crazy. Which is, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, I mean, it's stunning. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hayek had actually won the Nobel. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for most Keynesians, he won it for, you know, sort of a technical, like about the knowledge problem, right? This, they, they you know, in their minds, uh, Austrian economics, you know, you may as well be talking phrenology or, you know, some weird 19th century, you know, people believed that, you know, the humors would make you sick. Sure. They, they don't understand that it's not only is it alive, it's it's superior to mainstream economics. That's that's so interesting. When as an undergraduate, when you were learning about Keynesian economics, did did it ever not quite make sense to you? Yeah, the best I had as a counterpoint uh, was Friedman. Uh, and, but, you know, Friedman, uh, especially on money, Friedman is, is basically uh, Keynesian. Uh, you know, so there's there, within Keynesians, there's lots of debates about, you know, should the Fed be, you know, there's different metrics it can target. And, you know, there's kind of nuts and bolts, uh, whether it should be doing something differently. You've got NGDP targeting and you know, you've got all these little disagreements and schools of thought. Um, but, you know, because I wasn't aware that there was this entirely different paradigm, uh, you know, I, I believed what all my textbooks said, which was, you know, gold is anachronistic. It failed. Uh, we have much more scientific and modern ways to manage such things. And, you know, they don't always get it right, but, uh, but it's a lot better than it used to be. And, and, and that's sort of the party line. And, of course, all of that is completely false. It's the precise opposite. It's gotten worse, not better. Yeah. Uh, all of these, you know, these guys with the academic degrees and the big uh, brains are they are making it worse. They should mm-hmm. just, you know, go find a uh, real job and and stop <laughs> stop screwing things up. But but you just wonder wh- what uh, when is the emperor not going to have any clothes on? It? I mean, wh- where does it stop? And do, will they ever admit because they they can't walk back what they've been promoting? Right. Uh, They'll never admit it. Um, You know, even today, uh, you can read the, you know, Federal Reserve talking about the 1970s or about the 2008 crisis. And it was never their fault. You know, Um, at worst, maybe they'll say, well, you know, we were trying to, you know, we were just trying to too darn hard. You know, we were uh, trying to, you know, keep unemployment down or we were trying to do this and that. Never is is, is a sort of a firm uh, admission that, you know, maybe um, their entire reason for existing is, you know, wrong. (laughs) Do you think that's it? I mean, do you do you think that's it? Do you think that it's it's um, they're unaware? I mean, they they they're they're it's not like it's not as if they are aware something else exists and it might be superior. They, they're just, um, I guess in current political parlance, useful idiots. They, they just assume that the system that they're working within is correct and they try to modify it as they see fit, but 
that's that's all they know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not that they necessarily even fight Austrians. They just they they think, you know, Austria, uh, it's like a separate world that that has no validity. I mean, you know, literally, you know, it'd be like talking about 12th century physics. Mm. What, uh, you know, I politically leaning, I've been a Republican all my life here in the States and really was not enamored with Ron Paul and, and his, you know, I, I wasn't even aware of uh, the term Austrian economics. But, you know, politically in the U.S., why is uh, Ron and then his son Rand, um, are they not taken more serious? I mean, they they I mean, obviously now it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and they're. I don't know. It's just very curious. What What is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, partly it's, uh, you know, a question of numbers. Um, so, you know, what Ron Paul is advocating uh, would have been the Democrat Party position in the 19th century, uh, the so-called mm. Bourbon Democrats. Mm. You know, so back then we basically had sort of translating into modern terms. Uh, we had a dominant libertarian party called the Democrats. And then we had what would basically be considered a modern Republican Party, which at the time was called the Republicans. And of course, the Democrats leapfrogged and became super Republicans. Uh, but right. So, you know, the sort of core ideas that Ron Paul is advocating, there was a time when those were dominant in the U.S., you know, 130 years ago. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't think the ideas are necessarily off. I think the problem is that we the institutions that form opinion in our country right so these are made up of news media academia um uh, you know the arts hollywood uh there are a bunch of opinion forming institutions uh and those universally reject you know sort of the individualist small government approach and so that's improving because of the internet Right. So people are getting a lot more taste, even with the censorship. Still, it's much better than it was pre-Internet. And, you know, Ron Paul really came out of the pre-Internet days. And so back then, in order to have been exposed to those individualist uh, ideas, honestly, you had to be a little bit weird. You know, you wouldn't just stumble on it in like a YouTube recommendation, you know, or, you know, you're hanging out on Facebook talking about your weekend and 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 a friend shares something from Ron Paul. That's that's how people get it today. But back then, I mean, honestly, you had to be a little weird. No, you, know, yeah. you had to like yeah. seek out some group in New York or, you know, find some. I mean, there was just no way to find out about it. Uh, you couldn't turn on the TV. It wasn't in the newspapers. You had to maybe run into somebody at. You know, I mean, it was weird. Like, it, it begs the question, how did anybody find Ron Paul before the yeah. Internet? Well, it, it kind of begs the question of, you know, the Bitcoin phenomena. And, you know, it, if the if the political class and the media class are inherently insulated or biased against Austrian economics and de facto, you know, Bitcoin, what it seems like Bitcoin almost has the same sort of struggle in recognition. Now, I, you know, there's the whole economic side that may drive that narrative differently. But um, it seems that, you know, the media class and the political class are going to withhold knowledge of Bitcoin for as long as they can. For sure. And it's very similar to the, you know, Austrian economics question, the libertarian question. It's not so much that they're anti-Bitcoin. They just don't know any better. 
you know, I believe they are telling the truth when they say that they don't think Bitcoin is real money. Uh, they don't think it can ever work. They think it's a Ponzi scheme, et cetera. They're not lying. They're not, you know, it's not like they secretly know that Bitcoin is the future of money and, and you know, they're trying to talk it down. Um, no, I think they honestly don't know any better. Um, despite the credentials, despite the PhD, they honestly don't know any better. And, you know, I think that's true uh, when it comes to Austrian economics. It's true when it comes to libertarianism. Um, and, you know, it's certainly true with Bitcoin. Now, of course, we have the Internet now. Um, censorship against Bitcoin is nowhere near as strong as it is for, um, you know, sort of over partisan issues. Um, so that's not uh, as much of a handicap. Uh, and indeed, I mean, you know, it is spreading massively. Bitcoin also has a benefit that, you know, Austrian economics or libertarianism did not, which is that number goes up. Yeah. And, you know, you get guys who lived in their basement three years ago and now they have a Lamborghini and their peer group is going to notice that in a way, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's yeah. that's much more appealing from a marketing perspective if you're trying to spread the revolution than simply, you know, sharing a really good article by Rothbard. Yeah. Um, so number goes up, I think, has been, you know, probably the single biggest marketing <laughs> tailwind for Bitcoin. Do, do do you think that Gary Gensler is is going to be he, he's probably going to be neutral in promotion, but do you think he's going to have any impact on educating uh, policy and or the the politicians and as it relates to Bitcoin or is, is he pretty much kind of a non non sequitur as far as Bitcoin adoption in the U.S.? He's an interesting case. Um, there's a lot that's good about him and a lot that's bad. Um, you know, sort of as a starting bid, uh, a little knowledge is dangerous, right? So you might argue that you would prefer somebody who has no idea what a crypto is mm. uh, to just stay out of the way. Um, so he does know enough that, you know, he could theoretically cause more trouble. <laughs> I mean, he, he taught a pretty extensive course at uh, <coughs> MIT. So, I mean, he seems exactly. to be pretty knowledgeable. Yeah. Mm hmm. Right. So um, he, he's, you know, in that sense, more dangerous um, from a regulatory perspective. Uh, on the flip side, um, his familiarity means that there are certain aspects of crypto that he appreciates a lot more than I think most regulators do. So, you know, the first instinct of any regulator whatsoever is just to ban it. Right. If you sure. don't understand it first, first kill it. And then, you know, you can autopsy and try to figure out what it is. Um, but, you know, they have a very knee-jerk, just wipe it out. Um, they, you know, this, in the early days of the internet, I mean, you know, it was it was touch and go whether they would even permit commerce. In fact, it was, it was touch and go whether they would commit or permit uh, private usage, right? Uh, the early internet, you know, it was only for universities and, and government users. And then there was a big fight. You know, the FBI got involved, didn't want credit cards. The point is every single new technology regulators First instinct is to ban it. So you put those together. On the one hand, uh, you know Gary knows more about the field, which means that you know he might be a little bit more competent uh, in <laughs> wiping out certain aspects of it, particularly in you know centralized um, altcoins, Ethereum, uh, DeFi. Um, but on the flip side, you know he does have more appreciation uh, where. He understands a little bit more the damage that he would cause by wiping things out. So I think, it, you know, if you sort of net those out, 
I'd say he is more dangerous than a typical SEC commissioner for mm. um, altcoins. He's probably on net less dangerous uh, for Bitcoin. He seems to have a little bit more respect for Bitcoin than he does for um, more centralized coins. Yeah, I think his latest statements on altcoins seem to be a little um, concerning, which is fine. Uh, it, but it seems like he's definitely um, into Bitcoin or has a maybe not into it, but certainly has more respect for Bitcoin and the technology behind it. Um, Peter, if we could go back a little bit and just describe to me the kind of the intellectual ascent or dissonance that you had to go through with transitioning from, you know, traditional Keynesian economics to Austrian economics when you went to graduate school. I mean, what was that like? And was that was that a hard transition or did you you went to uh, George Mason specifically because of Austrian economics? So you must have learned about it, I guess, in that in that book you had read. Yeah, exactly. So in my undergrad, you know, I've been free market since uh, high school. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of free marketers within um, the, you know, within Keynesian economics, um, Milton Friedman being an iconic case, right? So Milton Friedman is socialist on money, but on everything else, he is, you know, hardcore, perfect, you know, fantastically uh, free market. Uh, so, you know, I would have probably identified as a um, uh, Friedmanite um, during my undergrad studies. And so, you know, philosophically, there's not that much of a difference. Uh, it's mostly just understanding that, you know, money doesn't work the way that you thought it did. Um, but, it, you know, most uh, free market Keynesians do tend to be pretty skeptical about the Fed's abilities. Um, you know, they expect that the Fed will screw up. Uh, you know, they're not they're not Pollyannish. I mean, they you know, they're, they're skeptical of the government in general, uh, including the Fed. So philosophically, that was a really big jump. It was more just that, you know, the scales have fallen off in terms of how money specifically works. And that was really Mises. Um, you know, if you're new to the tradition, generally, I recommend Rothbard first, just because he's, he's kind of an easier read. It's a bit more modern. It's not as German in terms of sentence structure and so on. <laughs> Um, but right. So philosophically, it wasn't really a heavy lift. Um, but by the time that I got to wanting to do the PhD, you know, I'd already learned about Austrian economics. I mean, once I came across that book in 99, you know, it was really I mean, it was just kind of a couple months of just hardcore, you know, going down the rabbit hole. Um, so, you know, I radicalized pretty quickly and flipped over to Austrian. What which, was your what was your uh, speaking of what, what was your thesis on? Uh, my graduate thesis was the idea that democracy itself is extremely dangerous because it's motivated by um, what's called altruistic punishment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so politicians, which I model as marketers, uh, they try and get people to engage in self-sacrifice, mm -hmm. in other words, self-harm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, and they they need this because of something called the voting paradox, right? So strictly speaking, logically, you shouldn't vote because your odds of influencing the election are far less than your odds of dying in a traffic accident on the way to go vote. And so, you know, this is one of the paradoxes in political science. Why in the heck do people vote? They shouldn't be voting. Uh, and, you know, similar is also that people donate, right? They donate time, they donate substantial amounts of money with no hope of a return. You know, you have grandmas who send $100 checks to Barack Obama. Um, Barack's not going to do something for them specifically. 
uh, their hundred dollars is not going to make a you know enough difference in the world. You know, you multiply that by the odds that the hundred dollars allows some new policy, it's not going to be profitable for them, strictly speaking. Yet people do it, and so my hypothesis is that what explains these politicians are implicitly aware of this, and that's why they use emotional appeals. That's mm. why they use demagoguery. Mm. The entirety of demo- of democratic politics is based on a demagogic principle because it has to be because if it were not people would not vote and they would not donate interesting <laughs> very interesting i think that's going to be too much for me to to chew on right now but i <laughs> I, I just thought i'd ask you and that's that's actually no no, no no yeah sorry it's, no it's fantastic um the uh it, before i we jump into some of your your article well you know I'll, let me ask you this question uh putting you know, as we as we dive into some of your articles and talk about morality, do you think uh, Keynes was uh, an evil person? Uh, no, I just think he was a hustler. Um, you know, he was like an Internet marketer selling uh, vitamin supplements or something. I mean, he was just a hustler. Uh, his dad was connected. He was at a loose end in life. He was kind of a ne'er-do-well. Uh, his dad bought him, literally bought him a position at mm-hmm. university. That's how it worked back then. Uh, and, you know, he just spouted garbage that, you know, a million people have done before. It's just standard inflationist claptrap for 500 years. And, uh, you know, he was the right man at the time um, because of his dad's connections. Uh, you know, they they needed a and, and I mean, he's he's very, you know, he's a very good speaker. He's a good writer. Uh, so, yeah, he was basically a marketing guy. And, uh, you know, they it was sort of um, a mass agreement to pretend that this is some revolution when it's simply, you know, yet another restatement of the same garbage that, you know, uh, inflationists have been selling for for centuries. Do you so, think? Uh, right. So so to answer the question, I don't think he's evil, but he's not an economist at all. OK, fair enough. And do you but do you think and I think I know the answer to this, but. Do you think his economic policies have resulted in evil? Inflationist policies have long resulted in evil, for sure. And this goes back to the Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire. I mean, um, inflation has toppled empire after empire. Uh, In many ways, it's the way that empires go. Uh, You know, you have a golden age. And one of the first signs that it's coming to a close is the inflation. Hmm. So it's ironic, of course, because, you know, the sort of mainstream um, pitch today is that you need inflation or the world will fall apart. No, no, it's the precise opposite. Yeah, that's interesting. And we'll talk about that as well. But do you, I mean, where where were the good men with Keynes? I mean, who, and this is what I struggle with is it seems like his economic policies have caused a lot of harm in the in the 20th century. And. You know, where were the good people that stood up and said, no, you know, this does not make sense. Um, and, and maybe you're right or not maybe. But, you know, I, it's it, it, apparently he was the right man for the right time. And the, the political uh, circumstances promoted his his views. I just hope that we don't repeat them, you know, and. Yeah. Yeah. He was a creature um, of what was called war socialism. Yeah. Right. And this is in World War One. The progressives have been trying to, um, you know, have the government take over uh, the economy, take over society. Uh, and they finally got their wish come true with World War One. Uh, and so they, you know, indeed, they implemented so-called war socialism. So 
you know, they had rules on, uh, you know, how many types of shovels would be allowed to exist because otherwise it would be, you know, it would be inefficient. And I mean, they just controlled every last little detail. Uh, and, you know, Keynes, uh, that then empowered this whole group of bureaucrats, sort of all empowered bureaucrats. And then, you know, they spent the next 30 years uh, trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle. And that's that's where Keynes came in. Keynes was the, you know, useful dummy uh, who they needed to claim that, you know, oh, no, no, you know, it's a whole new revolution. This is scientific. My my friends, uh, you know, this is how we're going to have the brave new world. So, I mean, you know, really, the in terms of where the strong men went, they got pushed out of the way by World War One. In fact, many of them were killed, of course. Mm. Uh, yes. And then once they installed that once, you know, they had tasted the fruit and they just kept trying to recapture it, grabbed it again. And, uh, you know, they, they haven't let it go. Wow, that's a fascinating thought. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that. You're right. I mean, the, the strong men were killed. A lot of people were killed in World War One. Do you think that he could succeed today with the same scheme if he came on the scene today? If if we had not existed in this in the last hundred years and we're, you know, where we are today with the current technology we have, uh, do you think he could succeed in implementing his economic policies? Uh I don't think, um, you know, I mean, if they hadn't been installed that once in World War One, um, there was, you know, not much appeal for it. Um, inflationists, uh, you know, such as William Jennings Bryan, uh, the famous um, uh, cross of silver. Uh, inflationists had been trying to push, uh, you know, what we now call Keynesian economics. I mean, they've been trying to push that throughout the 19th century, and it was consistently rejected because people wanted uh, their dollars to hold value. You know, um, it, now this kind of brings us to another question, which is the, um, you know, sort of frog in the, the boiling water. Um, you know, part of the reason that the 19th century was so skeptical towards inflationism and towards soft money um, is because they had had the experience of greenbacks during the Civil War. Uh, so they actually had a living memory of government printing up confetti that went to nothing. Uh, and so, you know, it's possible that just every generation has to relearn, uh, you know, and that brings us to the, you know, the hard the hard times create uh, strong men. Uh, I mean, it is possible that, you know, it's hopeless that this is just kind of how how things happen, um, that the best we can do is kind of rear guard, try and, you know, delay it as long as possible. And then. You know, we go through a hard time and people uh, people um, sort of straighten up <laughs> and regain their sanity. Uh, and then, you know, maybe hopefully we get another century out of it. Um, now, having said, I mean, there, there have been periods where it's been worse than today and we came back. Uh, I think in almost every respect, the 1970s were worse mm -hmm. than it is today. Setting aside COVID for a moment, um, you know, if we compare really any year in the 1970s with 2019, uh, it got better. Mm. And it got better because of, I believe, Reagan. Um, you know, Reagan sort of snapped back, uh, improved uh, quite a few things, got the economy up and running, shrank the government in many ways. Carter bizarrely actually shrank the government substantially. Um, he reduced the regulatory state, maybe surprisingly. Uh, you know, and then you've got Trump. Um, of course, uh, similar to Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton, 
you know, that was sort of a new paradigm where, you know, he was relatively centrist. So, you know, I think maybe the biggest, again, setting aside COVID, um, the biggest surprise of the past 50 years has been how how slow the decay has been. Uh, and that, you know, it's not uniformly downhill. I mean, we have come up in many ways. You know, put it in perspective, homeschooling was illegal in the entire country, uh, I believe, up until 1980. Mm. There, there might have been a couple exceptions in the 70s. There was a famous guy uh, named Amish Bob, and he was a homeschool activist. And he, I guess he either converted to or he claimed to be Amish because he was, you know, he was trying to highlight that there's this exemption for one group, but nobody else is allowed to homeschool. Uh, you know, also Second Amendment. I mean, that was much rougher if we go back to the 1970s. Uh, I believe most states were, were, you know, it was effectively um, you couldn't own a uh, firearm. So, I mean, in, in many ways, you know, it's sort of fashionable to talk about the decay. But but it's also important to highlight that um, things do get better in many ways. Um, you know, you could debate whether it's one step forward, two back or the mm-hmm. other way around. But uh, things are surprisingly um, slow. Well, it seems as if, at least here in the States, we might have a rebound of of some of those first principles um, with all the shenanigans that are going on. But if you look at especially Australia, I mean, it seems like that's a lost cause at this point. I don't I don't know how they ever get back to what they were before. That's so that's because there seems to be a class of people. It doesn't matter what country you're in that want the government to support and supply their needs. And I, I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe that's human nature, but um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Uh, yeah, well, part of the issue is, um, you know, the left has been very, very clever at putting in laws that um, fund activists. OK, so, um, you know, they'll put in an environmental or safe, uh, you know, health law or something. And there'll always be a rider on there where there'll be a ton of money that's going to activist groups and it'll be to educate people or, you know, to do research on the consequences of global warming and, uh, you know, demography. I mean, you know, they have a million uh, justifications for it. But the bottom line is that you end up with, you know, tens of billions of dollars going directly to activists. What do those activists do with it? Well, they hire an army of people who sit around and come up with you know, new reasons to get more money. So, you know, you have this almost permanent army Mm -hmm. and they wake up every morning and they come to work and they figure out new ways to put burdens on the economy, to, you know, take control over your life. And by the way, to, you know, slip themselves a big new hunk of money in the way. So it's a sort of self-perpetuating machine. And that's very, very hard to get rid of. Um, You know, if you look at funding for Planned Parenthood, for example, I mean, you would think that would be low hanging fruit politically. And I I mean, it's almost impossible once this money starts flowing to activist groups. And, you know, Planned Parenthood is an example. right? I mean, they use a lot of that money to advocate for state or federal laws that increase their own funding. Mm -hmm. So just like any marketing organization or, you know, any private business. Uh, they get a hunk of money from the government. And they use that money for marketing, right? They use it for fundraising to make more money. Yeah. So yeah, the beast indeed. keeps growing. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Well, let's, uh, Peter, that was fantastic. Uh, let, why don't we switch into um, some Bitcoin topics? And, you know, in particular, if you could make the case for, I guess, the moral case for Bitcoin versus the current fiat system. And 
um, as we discussed before we started recording, you know, I find that once I started learning about the fiat system, I, I, I found it hard within my conscience to continue to support it or or think that it was good. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not. Uh, so kind of kind of uh, share your thoughts along those lines. Yeah, I think at core, um, you know, we were talking earlier about Keynes versus Austrian, um, you know, which is, you know, essentially socialism versus libertarianism. The key difference between the two is the same as the key difference between fiat and Bitcoin, which is um, the question of do the people serve the government or does the government serve the people? Okay, so are we clay to be molded by our betters in government or in the vision of the original constitution, are we the sovereigns and the government exists to support us, right? To, to largely stay out of the way, but, you know, a criminal, you know, to prosecute crimes and national defense or whatever. So who's supporting who, who's serving who? And, you know, libertarianism, of course, thinks that, you know, government should serve the people. Socialism thinks that the people should serve the government. Bitcoin, therefore, is very much libertarian money at core, right? Morally, the perspective of the Bitcoin is you don't serve Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin serves you. You don't have to do anything for Bitcoin. You don't want to use it. That's fine. <laughs> right? Bitcoin does its thing. Uh, fiat money, you know, they they care very much whether everybody's involved in fiat money. Uh, they sit around and worry about it. You know, if, if, if uh, you know, Americans stop using fiat, you know, is this going to cause trouble in our... Um, in our financial system, uh, you you serve fiat. Very good, I, and and totally agree. And segueing with that is this thought of hoarding is charity. Your article described, which is fascinating. Um, if if Bitcoin is more moral than fiat, describe the the morality in hoarding cash or hoarding uh, Bitcoin, and, and hoarding cash in particular. Um, you know, saving is not something that we've been taught to do because it decreases in value. So how do you reconcile hoarding fiat money when it's going to decrease in value? So kind of explain the premise of your article um, for, for, for us. Yeah, so um, you kind of want to back up and ask, uh, why do people buy money in the first place? Right. So um, you have to buy money with goods, right? You can buy it with your labor, uh, you can, you know, sell things, uh, which is buying money, um, trading a good. Uh, so why do people buy money? And of course, the reason, you know, there's there's two reasons to have money, uh, which is to transact and to save. Um, saving is really just transacting, but, you know, um, delayed over time. So anyway, um, there are these two basic purposes. And, uh, you know, that that's been important sort of since the beginning, um, you know, when people were skeptical about why Bitcoin um, had value in the first place. And that's, you know, my very first article on Bitcoin is back in 2014. I was basically arguing that, look, if you look at it, you, you can't look at it in terms of like, you know, is it made of gold? Is it made of paper? You have to look at it in terms of what can people do with this thing, right? And, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, it's, it's, it's a good way to transact. Uh, it holds its value, obviously, much better than fiat. So it's a great way to save. Uh, and, and that's kind of um, where its core value uh, comes from. Now, within that, right, specific to hoarding. So hoarding has gotten um, a bum rap, um, you know, partly because uh, the inflationists don't like it. Keynesians, um, they don't like uh, saving in general. They want everybody to spend all the money. 
because what they're aiming for is kind of a tissue fire. Uh, that's uh, Tom Woods' uh, expression, where the economy is is on fire. Mm-hmm. And it's quite good because, you know, this this raises your odds of winning the next election. Now, of course, the problem with that is that if you run down savings, then um, the society becomes uh, poorer over time or at any rate, less poor than it would have been. Right. So, you know, for for forever, um, people had you know promoted savings as a way to build wealth and so that uh, you can make the society uh, wealthier. Now, within right, so so that's why Keynesians um, sort of turned against uh, saving, uh, and they called it hoarding. And their idea was that uh, if people um, save up their money, then they're not spending it, and then the economy uh, is not doing as well. Now, what they miss, of course, is that um, you know what are you doing instead of spending that money, right? So you could be saving it in order to invest it in something else. Uh, like, you know, a new business, for example. So that would clearly be, you know, a question of uh, increasing um, the prosperity in the future. But the sort of trickier one for people to understand is what if you save the money and you don't do anything with it? Right. So what if, you know, instead of taking your hundred dollars and getting a haircut, what if you bury it in the backyard and cut your own hair? And there, you know, most Keynesians would say, well, this is terrible because, you know, it just drains resources out of the system. And what they're missing is sort of how the value of a dollar um, is originally established, right? So why is it, you know, that that a dollar is worth uh, a third of a happy meal? Okay, it's three, $3 for a happy meal. So good. A dollar is worth a third of a happy meal. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it worth more? Why isn't it worth less? And the reason is that you can basically imagine that you've got a big pile of all the stuff for sale. They've got a big pile of all the money for sale, all right? So this is stuff that people don't want, given how much they think they can get for it, okay? So 7-Eleven, you know, uh, it sells a bunch of stuff on the shelves, and, um, you know, it's got other stuff in the inventory. Uh, Its providers have other stuff in their inventory, right? Not not everything is for sale at any given moment, right? Uh, Indeed, if you go to 7-Eleven right before it closes... I guess they don't close, but at any rate, if you go right before closing time, you can't get everything for free. Why? Because n- n- not everything's for sale. I, I, I mean, it is at a price they expect to get, right? Right. But, right. Uh, you know, they're not just trying to get rid of everything. Similarly, there's a certain amount of dollars for sale. So there's a certain amount of dollars that people don't want to hold because they already have enough uh, dollars. And you know, why are they holding dollars in the first place? Transaction demand, savings demand because they expect to want to buy something in the future, right? So, you know, you've got a big pile of stuff for sale, a big pile of dollars for sale, and now you can just divide the two and you come out to some number, right? And that gives us $3 for Happy Meal. Now, let's say that a whole bunch of people uh, decided to save their money. Well, then rather than having a, you know, pile of, of stuff and a pile of dollars, now you're going to have a much smaller pile of dollars, so each of those dollars is going to buy more Happy Meal because the number of Happy Meals is going to be the same. The number of dollars is cut in half. Well, the price per Happy Meal is going to go down. You're going to have deflation. So an individual dollar will buy more. All right. And sort of a nice way to sort of capture this whole effect is that a dollar is a bidding ticket for a real resource. So that's, that's in the case of uh, not saving the dollar, but spending the dollar. Uh, well, if you save it, then what you're effectively doing is um, 
you're leaving more stuff for other people. Yes. And so their dollars are going to be worth a little bit more. So you can kind of think of it as an auction where there's a bunch of people offering dollars, uh, offering pieces of paper. <laughs> there's a bunch of people offering pieces of paper, and then there's a bunch of people offering Happy Meals. And if you take your, your bidding tickets, your pieces of paper out of the auction, okay, then there's more Happy Meals for everybody else. And so now their bidding tickets are going to buy more. Got it. Because you're not trying to outbid them for a Happy Meal. You've exited the Happy Meal market temporarily. Got it. Correct. Okay. And so what that does effectively, which is a kind of counterintuitive, is that you have effectively lent your bidding tickets to everybody else. Right. So because their bidding tickets are worth, you know, whatever, let's say you're one percent of the market, their bidding tickets are each worth a percent more temporarily. Right. So you've effectively lent them your bidding tickets. You said, here, I'm going to step out. It is as if you distributed your bidding tickets sure, to sure. one of them for free. Now, when later on you decide that you are getting hungry and you'd like a happy meal, then you re-enter the market and you take your purchasing power back because now you're back in the market. So what's amazing is that it, 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 this is where the sort of anti-hoarding crowd completely misunderstand what's happening. If a rich person takes their million dollars and goes out and buys a yacht, that's quite selfish because they are bidding away yacht builders, right? They're, they're bidding away wood and electronics and whatever. They're bidding away resources from everybody else who now has to make do with less. You know, so your toasters are more expensive sure, because sure. the millionaire used up all the electronics guys. All right. But on the flip side, if that same millionaire puts his money and buries it in the ground, he steps out of the race. Everything else is functionally cheaper. So he has effectively lent the million dollars to everybody else in the world. Mm. Very interesting. So, uh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. So consumption on the flip side, consumption I mean, it's the exact opposite. You're you're doing the exact opposite when you're consuming with with the description of the millionaire. Um, that's that's very interesting. But right. in a but in a inflationary, I mean, I, I presume that is in a state where the dollar is maintaining value. If you're if you're in a current environment like we're in right now, obviously that doesn't make a lot of sense because you're losing value. Uh, but so this would transition into a Bitcoin standard, and. Yes, that that would ultimately be the more altruistic thing to do is to not spend your Bitcoin based on yeah, that. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, specific um, when you pull out of that auction, um, you're you're effectively handing um, your purchasing power to others, which means that specific to Bitcoin. Right. Because so many Bitcoiners huddle. Right. Uh, they just hold long term. Um, it, that means that people who I, I mean, this is kind of ironic, but people who are selling Bitcoin. Uh, the very few people who, you know, sell it and go out and buy a Lamborghini, those are the people who are temporarily borrowing the hodler's Bitcoin. Yes, yes. Now, this doesn't bother the hodler because the hodler believes that it's going to go up. Right? I mean, most hodlers um, believe that Bitcoin is going to go up in future. So they're not particularly bo uh, bothered by the fact that, you know, Bitcoin sellers, you know, traders to the cause 
uh, are temporarily benefiting from their foregone purchasing power. Um, but it is interesting nonetheless, right? The reason why Bitcoin's price is so high is because so few people sell it. But that means that the very few people who do sell it can sell it for a pretty penny. What, so speaking of which, what do you think the market, the true market cap of Bitcoin is going to be. I mean, if you listen to Greg Foss, you know he he talks about four hundred trillion in you know assets uh, around the world that could be dumped into Bitcoin. Do do you think that's realistic that that much money could be uh, poured into Bitcoin? Uh, well, I think um, my general starting case uh, is close to one hundred and twenty trillion, uh, which is all of the currency in the world. Okay. Um, people aren't necessarily going to trade their house for Bitcoin because where do you live? But if they, uh, but if they, uh, there will be at some point there would be deflation in the price of homes if Bitcoin's rising rapidly and people decide not to buy a home or delay the purchase of a home and, and purchase Bitcoin instead. Right. Then maybe they would be putting they're deferring the purchase of their home and so they are putting some value um, of that house into into Bitcoin. So at some point yeah. you could you could make that argument. Uh, yeah, during the transition uh, phase, um, you would have sort of interesting behavior. Um, you've got kind of three stages, right? So uh, you've got the stage currently where Bitcoin is going up, um, and then you've got kind of the terminal stage where if Bitcoin wins, then it's probably not going up very much at that point. It, um, and, I, okay, I understand, and so. Right. When when you say if Bitcoin win, I mean, what what probability do you give Bitcoin winning? Oof, <laughs> it's tricky. Um, there's a lot to go right, a lot to go wrong. I mean, my my general, you know, currently the market is valuing that um, something. I believe it's under one percent. Uh, yeah, just under one percent. Uh, if if I take that 120 trillion as sort of human currency demand, can I divide that by 21 million? That gives you the price of 6 million, right? So given where we are today, 50,000, the market is implicitly uh, assigning the odds of Bitcoin winning. In other words, you know, taking over global um, money demand. It's assigning those odds at roughly 0.8%. Interesting. Uh, okay. So to me, that's low. Uh, I think that's too low. Um if it were assigning it 80%, that's probably too high. There's still a lot to go wrong. Uh, but, you know, of course, there's a lot of room in between. Um, so, I mean, I would say confidently up to 5%, I would say that's clearly undervalued. Uh, like, without a doubt, just, I mean, back of the envelope without even sitting down and working through the math. Uh, so that would imply roughly half a million Bitcoin price. So up in... Uh, let's see, about six, no, uh, sorry, about $300,000 price. So up to about $300,000, given the state of the world currently, I'd say that's grotesquely undervalued, right? Because a $300,000 Bitcoin price would imply 5% odds of hyper-Bitcoinization, of, of winning. Okay. And 5% strikes me as an absolute minimum. Um, now, you know, if we try to dig into more depth, um, you know, it's tricky because you've also got the question of timing. Uh, the fiat system has been surprisingly resilient. Um, it is, you know, it's functionally an algorithm, an, an algorithmic central bank, right, where, you know, you have a bunch of 
guys who sit around a table and they decide whether they think inflation is too high or too low. They have a pretty good grasp on how they can make inflation go up or down. And they have pretty strong motivations. You know, they don't they don't want uh, pitchforks in the street. Um, so the lever the levers seem to be diminishing on what they can do to to manipulate the economy to their liking. They, they, other, they, other than print money. I mean, I, yeah, I, uh, yeah other than print money. Uh, yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. And um, but, but, you know, I think if we look back to what happened in 1980, for example, with Volcker, uh, they do have the ability to rein in inflation if it gets away from them, but probably not without hurting the economy pretty bad. And that's why they're not, you know, they're not doing it for fun. They're They're reluctant to do it. Um, and so at that point, it's kind of an open question. If it gets away from them, will they have the spine at that point to do what needs to be done? That's an open question. Um, but, you know, sort of the point stands that they have faced a number of challenges and survived, you know, uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got past it. Uh, they caused an enormous amount of harm every time they they screw up. Um, but you know, they are still pretty resilient. Uh, they are still there. Um, so, you know, if we're trying to estimate the odds of Bitcoin winning, it's it's very, very sensitive to what the timeline is we're talking about. Where if we're talking about a 20-year timeline, I think that's exceedingly unlikely simply because um, it, the central bank is going to have to do a lot more harm than it's been doing in order for the system to really collapse, I think. Uh, you know, if we're talking further out 50 years or something, I think that's much more likely simply because, you know, if we look back at the history of fiat, they do eventually screw it up. What we're seeing, I think, nowadays, probably the sort of biggest sea change um, in, you know, the probabilities of hyper Bitcoinization is that uh, central banks are increasingly becoming um, uh, sort of playthings of governments. Mm-hmm. like an in-house piggy bank or an in-house ATM. And traditionally, central banks have tried to maintain their independence because they understood that once the central bank becomes the department of money printing, inflation runs away. Yeah. And, I mean, it, yeah. it, it seems as if Trump was pretty pretty good at the bully pulpit trying to get the Fed to do what he wanted to do, uh, just yeah. by saying it loud enough. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. The... Um, yeah, very interesting, Peter. Do, do you think that – so you mentioned inflation. Do, do you think that number, CPI, whatever you want to call it, do you think that number is manipulated? And if it is manipulated, in one of your articles, you mentioned that you know at, at some point it's ignored. At, at some point, the, the people laugh, and then uh, the last stage is they panic. And you know, I, I've seen to see – have seen some recent memes – you know, someone showed a, a very, you know, thumb-like uh, package of, of beef saying, you know, look, the price of beef is the same as it was last week. But, you know, they showed the sizes, you know, as an inch wide. Uh, so it seems like we're in the stage of laughter right now. And it seems like the the stage of panic seems like it would come suddenly. Where, where do you think we are on that? But answer the question. Do you think it's manipulated? And where do you think we are on that scale right now? I think there is certainly um, a fair amount of manipulation. Uh, this is across all government statistics. Um, they know that the newspapers report the headline, and there's a lot of games they can play inside the um, the data. 
so, you know, that's true on unemployment. Um, it's true on inflation. So, yeah, I think without a doubt, it's manipulated. There's, you know, verifiably, you know, if we look at the definition of inflation in the 1970s, for example, uh, what shadow stats has, uh, you know, various measures. And these are not made up measures he invented. These are actual previously used government measures. So these are, you know, official, um, but official in the past. Uh, so, right. I mean, real inflation uh, is probably running uh, higher than it is now. I don't think it's dramatically higher. Um, you know, I don't think it's in 20% or anything like that. Um, I mean, just because intuitively, you know, if you look at the things you're buying. Um, well, I think I think in one of your articles, you said if it gets above 10%, that's when it becomes kind of critical. I mean, do you think, do you realistically, not not what's being reported, but realistically, do you think we're above 10%? That is an interesting question. So, so when I see the 10% shelling point that gets people angry, I'm thinking the headline newspaper reported rate, um, which is false. Okay. But people react to that rightly or wrong. So if it's, if it's false at 10, what is it actually at that point? I would guess it's three to five higher. Um, and that's simply a guess without having dug in, but just sort of intuitively, it feels like maybe three to five higher. And do people get, do people get angry at the headline or they actually see the headline and they actually feel it in their pocketbook at the same time? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, the last, you know, the last, uh, sort of, um, natural experiment we have was, was the 1970s. And I believe the shadow stats does measure inflation according to 1970 standards. And I believe it's more or less, uh, I don't know, it's like eight or 10% at this point, according to the 1970s. Um, and, you know, in the 1970s, people did get upset about that. Uh, the question is, you know, now that we're coming close to hitting that again, um, it doesn't, you know, if you look at opinion polls, generally Republicans are worried about inflation, Democrats are not. Uh, you know, this could be the party in power. Uh, it could just be the Democrats are more credulous about uh, official statistics. Um, so, you know, it's kind of an open question. And I mean, really, it's 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 almost a marketing question. Like, at what point are, are people really going to get upset about it? Um, I mean, generally, you know, one of the biggest numbers that people self-reference is whether their salary is keeping up with their costs. And at some point, that's an honest measure. You know, if you're making, uh, you know, 10 percent more money, um, but you're spending 20 percent more then no matter what the government statistics are going to say, um, you know, people are going to start getting upset. So, you know, I think we're at the stage where um, it, it it hasn't hit people. Uh, there are a lot of areas that have had really high inflation, uh, you know, such as housing and cars. Um, it, salaries have not kept up yet, partly just because, you know, salaries are typically uh, negotiated once a year. So that's, you know, usually gradual. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of back and forth. Um, there's going to be a lot of debate in the media. Uh, so far, the Fed has been largely following the 2008 playbook, which is that it created all this new money and it sterilized it. Uh, so meaning that um, the money didn't end up going into inflation because it went into basically bank balances. Mm. Uh, and through various mechanisms, the Fed is is um, whether it's pushing that to happen or whether it's simply allowing it to happen. At either rate, a lot of the new money is just going into bank balances, so uh, did, bank did, reserves. Yeah. So, so do you think that this gives us another ten years on this current cycle, based on that? If, if they keep doing what they're doing right now, 
Uh, in other words, if the um, economy keeps doing what it's doing, and if they, you know, keep treating inflation the same way, then we're probably going to have basically a post 2008, you know, kind of muddle through mediocre growth, not really much inflation, uh, and you know, they buy another lease on life. Uh, I think the really big unknown at this moment is that uh, they're trying to push a lot of new policies, new regulations, mm-hmm. and taxes that could uh, cripple the economy. And if that happens, then the Fed is probably going to be tempted to stop letting the banks salt all that money away. And they're going to want the banks to lend it back out to the economy to juice economic growth, get that tissue fire. So the tissue fire cancels the load of bricks that this administration and Congress are putting on Americans' backs. And so if you have those, that can get you stagflation. Okay, that can get you an economy that is not growing very fast, but that the Fed is doing everything they can to pump more money into. So, you know, I think those are I, I don't think that's likely simply because Republicans are generally not on board. Um, the it, it, you know, what's sort of counterintuitive for people is that it actually takes a lot to kill an economy. It's harder than it looks um, because, you know, the U.S. Uh, economy, the virus did a pretty good job. Sorry. The virus did a pretty good job. Oh, Lord. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. right. It, turns out, it turns out they found a way to kill. Yeah, that's right. Yes, they did. But um, but right. You know, broadly speaking, like, you know, if we look at economic growth, you know, America's made of 300 million people who are all trying to do better. They're trying to earn more. They're trying to create more. Um, it, you know, they're all trying to do better for themselves. And if you simply um, stop punching them hard enough, mm-hmm. then they they will improve. The economy will grow. The economy will recover. Just stop punching them. And so, you know, what I think a lot of, um, particularly on our side, we're aware of how much the government can screw up the economy. We're aware of how much damage they can do. And, but, you know, you don't want to focus only on that, right? You want to remember that there's also this underlying, you know, effort where the people are trying very hard to get richer. You know, they're trying very hard to improve their business, to sell more product, you know, to get richer. And so those government punches are up against, you know, that sort of human nature. And so, it's not just a question of, is the government doing stupid things? It's always doing stupid things. The question is, is it doing enough stupid things to keep the economy from growing? And so that's what happened in the wake of 2008, for example. It's not that the government did anything smart to bring the economy back. It's just that you know the economy wants to come back. The, the American people want to do better. They want to get richer. And so on current trends, I think it's most likely that they will fail uh, to, you know, (laughs) sufficiently harm the people um, to head off growth. But, you know, I mean, there are, you know, there's there's some executive orders that are very uh, concerning. Uh, You know, some of these new bills, the reconciliation bill, the um, the infrastructure piece of garbage. Uh, they've got some bills that could cause a lot of harm. And so it's still very much a possibility that they'll cause enough harm to stop the economy growing, at which point the Fed panics and flushes the money out, at which point we're back to the 70s. So, Peter, I mean, that was a great 
a, a great discussion and um, kind of all the shenanigans that the that the Fed can do. You know, in, in one of your papers uh, or essays, you, you talk about the reserve status. Um, does dollar dominance actually benefit Americans? And you and you talk about the the reserve status of of the American uh, of the U.S. dollar. So, for me as an American, yeah, that I, I seem to think that I want the the reserve status um, of the U.S. dollar. But what what would we lose by not having reserve status? Do we lose our dominance on the world stage with foreign policy? And I guess um, along with that, do you think that the current geopolitical climate with what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time between before China starts uh, aggressing towards Taiwan and, and Russia's probably going to start uh, encroaching upon Ukraine. But um, so talk about our currency stat, our reserve status. And do you think the geopolitics of everything going on right now is going to affect the overall economy? And that's that's kind of a magic ball question. But just kind of give us your thoughts. I think it has less impact than it seems like it should. Um, if the U.S. loses dominance in the world so that we can't dictate, you know, what Central African countries do, um, that's probably a net positive for our economy. Um, Switzerland also doesn't dominate the world and they seem to do just fine. Um, you know, generally speaking, the costs of empire are borne by regular Americans. The benefits do not flow to regular Americans. Uh, so, you know, I think economically, um, I would welcome our departing from the world stage. Now it's an open question. What happens next? Uh, you know, so we can hope that other rich countries like uh, Europe and Japan can stand up and defend themselves. Um, but, you know, assuming they're able to do that. And I mean, they are self-interested. You know, Japan's got a lot of resources. Uh, it has nuclear power plants. Um, I'd be amazed if it didn't have the ability to produce uh, weapons to protect itself. Um, but at any rate, you know, just the prospect of the U.S. pulling back and stopping wars I think is a net positive um, for the economy. Uh, now, those are slightly different than reserve currency status, right? Um, we dominate the world largely because we have a huge military. Uh, I believe we spend more than every other country on earth combined. Um, and, you know, we have an enormous economy to back it up, meaning that uh, if we ever get into a prickly war, we can throw trillions of dollars, which we have done many times. Um, so, you know, you put the money in the in the guns together, and that's fundamentally why the whole world has to listen to us. It's not necessarily the, the reserve currency, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, if we did lose that reserve currency, what would happen? Uh, you know, generally speaking, you like having a reserve currency because it means that foreigners are giving you perfectly good cars in exchange for pieces of paper that you just printed in the basement. Peter, I think that's a very interesting point. So let me just break in here. So yeah. because I I have associated our reserve status to the winning of primarily World War II. Um, so you're saying basically, and, and I would assume that most politicians would think the same way, that we have reserve status because we are a dominant world power, but you're you're making the argument that not necessarily. Right. Um, there's 
kind of a perfect storm why we have a reserve currency status. So, you know, one of them is that we are a large economy. Um, we are, you know, we were until very recently, we were the um, largest export destination in the world. China is now larger, but China's currency has a number of problems. Um, it's not freely floating. The Chinese government does uh, the strangest things. Uh, and that brings us to, you know, kind of the second reason beyond our size, um, why the U.S. dollar is so dominant, uh, which is that we've been the cleanest dirty shirt for a long time. Mm. You know, so the Fed has been pretty conservative, not the most conservative. Uh, the Japanese bank um, has been more conservative than the Fed. So, you know, the Fed is not the best in the world when it comes to uh, refraining from inflation, uh, but it's better than most. So if you put those together, right, we have a freely floating currency. We have a large economy. Um, and we have a relatively, up until now, we've had a relatively trustworthy central bank. Uh, you put those together, and that's that. That's you know pretty much uh, why we have the status. Now the status has been a, has been uh, eroding for the past. I mean, really, ever since um, well, ever since Bretton Woods, uh, it's been eroding. Um, so you know, currently about sixty percent of foreign exchange reserves are in the U.S. dollar. That's down from about seventy percent in twenty twenty. So, I mean, we are very gradually losing um, reserve currency status. Now, that's a 10 percentage point movement in 20 years. So that implies that we're not going to lose, lose it for another, you know, what, 60 years uh, just on that trend. Um, but then, you know, it sort of raises the question, what does that do to our economy? Uh, and, you know, Switzerland is not a reserve currency. They do just fine. Uh, you know, sort of the short answer is not a whole lot. Uh, you would probably see inflation. Well, specifically, you would see the U.S. dollar go down in value, uh, which would lead to, you know, um, buying stuff from China would be more expensive. So that would show up in inflation. Uh, you would probably at least temporarily have, um, you know, U.S. exports would be more competitive. Uh, but in the sort of long run, um, it would be harder for the Fed to create new money. Right. Currently, it can print up new money and it can use that money to buy, say, government bonds. And it can do that because it's effectively siphoning those dollars away from dollar holders. Now, because so many foreigners hold, hold dollars, it means that the Fed can siphon from not just Americans, but it can siphon from foreigners. And so that means that the Fed can print more money and hand more you know, resources to the government than it otherwise could. So you could actually argue that, yes, there'd be short-term pain, we'd probably see inflation, but in the long run, you could even argue that uh, Americans would be better off without reserve currency status. Yeah, interesting. And, and your article uh, speaks to that. I, I thought that was fascinating as well. And so since we're talking about reserve uh, currency, why don't, why don't we segue into El Salvador? Uh, they, they, you know, next week they will legalize uh, the formally the Bitcoin will be legal tender. And I guess there was a question of whether or not um, that was the right, correct route to go down versus having Bitcoin as a reserve currency uh, for their for their uh, treasury. And, you know, when you when you originally wrote your articles on El Salvador's um, legal tender law, uh, you had some concerns about the Article 7 and those are written. These were written around the time that it was announced. Uh, if you could revisit those, and you know, have you given it any more thought? And and uh, or are there any additional thoughts that you'd like to add um, since your original writings on this matter? 
Definitely. Uh, I mean, broad, broadly speaking, I think what El Salvador did is is fantastic. Um, the most of the government assets are going to continue to be in U.S. dollars. Uh, El Salvador doesn't have its own currency. They they screwed it up so badly previously. They just gave up and uh, and um, and switched to the U.S. dollar, which was the right move. Um, but at any rate, you know, for government assets, um, I think that's the right move to keep those in dollars just because Bitcoin fluctuates too much. Um, it, it, the libertarian in me loves the idea of holding reserves in Bitcoin, but it's too risky. OK, uh, if Bitcoin has another Bitcoin you know, winter and goes down 90 percent, sure. you'll get blood in the streets and the whole thing will be reversed. It's playing with fire. Uh, so I think it's, you know, that was wise of them um, to do uh, U.S. dollar reserves. And in fact, I think that's also true for most Salvadorans. Most Salvadorans should keep most of their life savings in dollars, not in Bitcoin. Bitcoin fluctuates too much. Sure, dabble, you know, 20 percent, whatever the percentage is. Um, but I don't think anybody wants, you know, a bunch of um, very poor people on, you know, potential on the edge of of, you know, extreme poverty uh, getting wiped out in a Bitcoin crash. And I guess, you know, before we started recording, I was mentioning that I, I didn't think there was going to be a lose for El Salvador with this rollout. But I guess that that could be a lose. That could be a major lose. It, right. It could theoretically be a lose. I mean, um, the trick at the moment is that, you know, Bitcoin's price is largely a function of the probability that it will replace fiat. And that probability fluctuates day to day. Right. Maybe it's 0.8 percent today and maybe it'll be 0.6 percent tomorrow or it'll be one percent the day after. That fundamentally is why Bitcoin goes up or down 20 percent. Right. And so that is not a wise asset to put, you know, the kids college savings, your retirement assets. Um, it is speculative and it, it will remain uh, speculative until it wins. Right. At some point, it'll be 80 percent, 90 percent, 95 percent. At that point, sure, put your life savings in Bitcoin, but not at this uh, 0.8% stage. Now, the part of the Bitcoin law that um, it got a lot of criticism from even libertarians, mm -hmm. which was that um, Article 7, which states that everybody has to accept Bitcoin. Um, you can, you know, so if the, um, if the customer wants to pay in dollars, you have to accept them. If the customer wants to pay in Bitcoin, you have to accept them. And my argument on that, so I understand why he did it, which is, you know, he wants to protect remittance recipients, right? So something like 20% of El Salvador's GDP is made up of remittances, which is a, that's roughly the share that oil makes up in Saudi Arabia, right? So that's an immense part of the economy. Um, it, it, you could almost say the Salvadorian economy is a remittance-based mm -hmm. <laughs> economy. I mean, it's enormous. And, and with you know, the, these are Peter. If I may just interrupt real quick. I mean, but with that fact alone, the remittance factor. I mean, they could grow their economy by what three or four percent with this this Bitcoin law uh, by getting rid of the the remittance fees. If I understand the math correctly. Uh, yeah, well, in the long run, for sure. Um, you know, the fees are so much lower, uh, especially now with lightning, right? Fees are, yeah. are, they're essentially zero. Um, so right over time. And, and that's probably where the biggest uptake is going to be is, is, um, people using Bitcoin, Salvadorans using Bitcoin to send their money back home. And then the people who receive 
that Bitcoin might turn around and spend it, right? Because, you know, they don't have to exchange it for dollars first. Um, so that's probably sort of the camel's nose under the tent where we're going to see the highest um, uptake. And I understand why he did it. He wanted to protect the, the you know, your your uh, grandmother living back in El Salvador, you're sending her remittances and you'd like her to go be able to spend them at the pharmacy without getting you know ripped off at the bank. Okay, so I understand why he did it. It did give a lot of libertarians um, pause because they don't like the idea that the government would dictate which currency you can accept in the first place. I mean, personally, I understand their concerns. I think the trade-off was worth it. Um, and you know, I would say the same thing about gold. Um, you know, if some country came in and said, okay, we're going to throw away our paper currency, we're going to replace it with gold, but you have to accept gold at, you know, McDonald's, I would, you know, I could live with that. <laughs> um, the point is that he's mandating acceptance of a currency that is outside the control of governments. And if that can move us towards a world where governments no longer control currency, I'll take that as a huge win. And so... Looking at wins or losses with the rollout, what do you think? Other than the the value of Bitcoin going down dramatically, which would that wouldn't be a major loss for Salvadorans? I mean, do you see a, any other loss scenario in the rollout? I mean, I'm sure a lot of things could go wrong, but the economy, their economy is so small. Would anybody really know that the Bitcoin rollout didn't go well, other than Salvadorans? Oh, I think for sure. Uh, there's a lot of attention um, on them right now, uh, all across Latin America specifically, but uh, really worldwide. There are a lot of eyeballs in El Salvador. Um, I think a lot's riding on them. Uh, I talked to uh, one Salvadoran. Uh, she said it feels like um, it feels like we're a frog that's being dissected, and everybody's watching us. And we didn't ask for this. Uh, now she's she's skeptical. Uh, she thinks it's going to go badly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it might go badly in the sense of being embarrassing, but, you know, in the sense of uh, destroying the entire country. Look, I mean, if people don't save in Bitcoin, you know, that's going to be the most likely failure is that, sim you know, people simply don't park their money in Bitcoin. They park it in dollars instead. Uh, it, it, that, that's not a catastrophe. That just means, you know, uh, you tried something and it, and it didn't work. Uh, it didn't take. Um, now, there's the possibility that the government could screw something up. The Salvadorian government is not famous for its uh, competence historically. Uh, they have kind of a funny mechanism where the, um, you know, they have a state-owned bank that's going to be participating in this uh, exchange fund. Uh, I could absolutely see them screwing that up simply because um, that government has screwed up a lot of things in its time. Uh, that would not be terribly shocking. Uh, but, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, if he's saying that people can accept Bitcoin and some people therefore decide to accept Bitcoin, it doesn't strike me that a whole lot uh, can go wrong there. Um, you know, even for small vendors, uh, you know, there's a mechanism, which is that development bank thing. There's a mechanism that they can instantly swap the Bitcoin they receive in the U.S. dollars. Uh, he's probably not even really going to enforce that on small vendors. Um, you know, this is the case across Latin America, but it's one thing what the law says is another thing what reality on the ground. Uh, Bukele, the president who put in this reform, he's a former socialist. Um, he very much fancies himself a man of the people. Uh, I, you know, I think what he's basically aiming at here is to force McDonald's to take Bitcoin. 
But, you know, the pupusa vendor on the beach, uh, he's not going to give them a hard time. So I hope that's the case. Uh, I hope that transmits down to the, you know, policemen uh, who can behave entrepreneurial towards uh, towards their Mm -hmm. (laughs) towards the people. But um, but at any rate, I, I am optimistic. I guess so. The biggest benefit would be that it is not a catastrophe and that they become the first domino of many in Central and Latin America. That is exactly what I'm hoping. Uh, you know, there are a number of countries in the world. Uh, Salvador is actually not the country that needs it most um, because Salvador already got rid of its of its own garbage currency. Right. It uses the dollar. Uh, there's a number of countries in the world that have you know quite high inflation. Um, Turkey, Nigeria. Um, you know, there are a lot of countries where people need Bitcoin a lot more, actually, than than uh, Salvadorans do. Uh, so that's really my hope anyway, is that people in other countries will see how this works. Uh, and then, you know, that pushes um, politicians in those countries, particularly in democracies, right? Countries that aren't democracies at all, they have inflation, but maybe they don't care that much. Um, so, yeah. you know, Venezuela, for example, you know, their public popularity doesn't seem very high on their list. Right. <laughs> Um, so, right. You know, you're interested in uh, democracies with high inflation. Um, so, you know, Turkey, Nigeria, places like that are what I'd be most interested in. Very good. Peter, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, but I, I've got to ask you, so the if you had to put, you know, in this in this bull cycle, where where do you think we're going to go with uh, Bitcoin? It's always tricky um, because fundamentally what you're predicting is the probability of an event that's going to happen 50 years out. And so how much of that probability is going to occur, you know, when we speak of cycles in Bitcoin, we're talking 40 year cycles, right? So, you know, how much of that realization or, you know, how much of that probability is going to happen in the next three years? It's almost impossible to say, uh, you know, I mean, my sort of go to assumptions are. You know, this is across economics. Um, it's called the naive prediction. The naive prediction means that you predict that tomorrow will look like today. <laughs> and the that's pretty, that's pretty safe. <laughs> well, what's funny about it is that the naive prediction beats almost everybody. Okay, uh, if you predict that GDP next quarter will be the same as it is now, that actually is closer to the truth. It beats Wall Street. It beats the Fed. Okay, so. In general, in life, if I don't have a darn good reason, I go with the naive prediction. So the naive prediction is that it will roughly double every year going forward. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Do you do you think that we are in a super cycle or not? I think we are. Um, you know, that brings us to the stock to flow question and. You know, that's been, you know, we can talk about it another time, but uh, the success of that model, I think, has has really humbled uh, a lot of economists who, you know, sit around and, you know, come up with uh, complicated reasons for things. Uh, and then you have this model that just, you know, it just stupidly marches along for no good reason uh, and keeps going up. Um, it, it, you know, if your listeners are familiar with that model, um, Saifedina Moose was sort of the inspiration. And then... Uh, uh, the user, I think it's plan B. trillion. Yeah, Plan B. Yeah, Plan B. Um, so you know, look it up. But uh, yeah, I mean, the success of the stock to to flow model, I think, has has humbled me personally. You know, where I'm reluctant to really uh, be too confident about exactly what's going to happen in Bitcoin. 
So, you know, just as an investor, um, you know, I try to understand the endpoint and have a rough idea of what kind of time frame we're looking at. And, you know, based on that, um, it strikes me that, you know, the, the kind of uh, super cycles that we've had in the last four halvings, it, it seems likely that uh, those will continue. You know, that's consistent with a model where people um, gradually realize that Bitcoin could actually become a world currency. Uh, you know, if we go through this sort of super cycle valuations, we'd be talking about, you know, ending at, at, at a market expectation of something like three, four percent likelihood. That strikes me as as definitely in the realm of possibility. Very good. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Always, always a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace.